we, we live in, in a state of, uh, more, more so as the older I get, uh, the country is full of hostility toward Judeo-Christian thinking. And it is not by accident. It is very purposeful if you study. Uh, and so a lot of things I used to be able to do, I used to get invited to go to high schools to pray for graduation services and things like that. They don't invite me anymore. Uh, there's there's an ever-increasing hostility to, toward Judeo-Christianity, and rightly so, because it is all, if you study at any d degree, it is all part of communistic strategy, because the only way you can uh, destroy a, a Western Judeo-Christian nation is to attack the backbone of it, which is a fear of God. Uh, and, and the fear of God's word and, and the fear of Christ, etc. Uh, because uh, we stand in the way of the advancement of evil. And we'll get into more of this in chapter 2 when we look at the coming of the man of sin and we look at uh, the removal of the church uh, before the tribulation begins because the church is uh, being used to restrain evil as we'll see in chapter 2 uh, because we believe in absolutes when it comes to morals. We believe in absolutes when it comes to logic. We believe uh, that Christ absolutely is the only Savior. So we're absolutist uh, in, in the world in which we live, which is very relativistic and they want to just do their own thing and not be accountable to anybody. And then you have Christians saying, no, that's sin, that's evil. They don't want to hear that. And so there's opposition to the faith. Um, hostility. Uh, you might have, I, I know a lot of you from uh, listening to you uh, talk to me, what you're, what you're uh, enduring. Uh, uh, and it's open hostility. Now more than, it used to be covert. Now it's just like kind of out in the open. Um, toward uh, those who stand for things that are godly and holy. Um, so things that we didn't think we would ever have to argue about and defend, uh, you're having to defend. Uh, and this is not going to get easier. It's going to get more complex as we head into the last times. So be encouraged because God's plans being unfolded and you're watching it being unfolded. And he's going to be with you in what, we're, what you face. If you haven't faced the opposition yet for your faith, you're going to. Uh, and when you do, the Lord will be with you. That's why you should be encouraged. Uh, the city of Thessalonica, known for great hostility toward the faith. Port city, uh, great place to be, high commerce, a lot of wealthy people. And then Paul showed up one day and starts preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden, all these people that were for generations lost in these cultic systems got saved. And they got so saved that they started telling their friends about their need. They, they, they need to turn to idols and turn to Jesus, the only God. And all of a sudden, all these people are not showing up at the, at the local idol uh, shops to buy idols. And they're not part of trade guilds, worshiping all the idols of the trade guilds. Um, and they're, they're, they're creating a problem. And so the culture begins to attack those people because they won't go along to get along. And, and, and they're interrupting the, the, the evil lifestyle of the said culture. And, and, and Paul is uh, writing to that church. And he's writing to them as their pastor to encourage them because they're facing hostility. Uh, because uh, many of them are losing their jobs. Families are being split over uh, religious concepts of Jesus is the Lord. No, Athena is, the, is, is God and all that stuff. And so Paul writes this church uh, to encourage them. And in verses 4 through 12, which is what we're going to look at, and yes, it is humanly possible to cover four, chapter 4 through 12, verses 4 to 12 in one 30-minute sermon, correct? Now, we had a power outage at the end of the last service. Did you hear this? Yeah, we did. It was most interesting. So I don't know what the devil's got planned for this service. Uh, asteroid hits the plant. That's the, I don't know. Uh, but we're just going to keep on preaching uh, what the word is uh, because that's what God has called us to do. 
when you face opposition, some of you are facing opposition, because uh, I know from you talking with me, uh, for your faith, whether you're in the military, uh, private sector, wherever you are, standing up for God, you pay the price for doing such. Um, how do you function? I mean, how should you function? Here's Paul's advice. Uh, I've summarized it in one main idea uh, in verses 4 to 12. Here's what Paul's advice is to the Thessalonians. Power through persecution. Why? Because divine justice will prevail. You have it built into the warp and woof of your being, justice. And when you see evil run rampant and not, and not be held accountable, you look at that and you think, hey, what's up with that? That something needs to happen. Uh, and uh, Paul's telling uh, the Christians there, um, you don't get discouraged. That's what the devil wants to make you feel. He wants to feel you discouraged. He wants to make you despondent. Uh, he wants to derail your faith. He wants to silence your faith. Uh, remember Elijah after he fought the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel? Uh, the next thing he did is he ran from Jezebel. And he wound up in a cave. Scared to death of Jezebel. One woman scared to death of Jezebel. Uh, and then you study the cave concept uh, in, in Kings. And that's where God comes and speaks to him. Remember? It's a great story. In a, in, a, in a still, small voice. And if, I don't know if you're hiding in a cave right now because of what's happening to you as a Christian, whether you're a school teacher trying to maintain uh, sanity and morality in a, in a secular school system that's embracing all kinds of stuff that's off the grid, and, and, and there, there, there's hostility toward you as a Christian. You might be in the cave, as it were. Uh, take this sermon as a, as a still, small voice of the Lord to you. Uh, how do you handle that hostility? Number one, uh, Paul says in verse four, uh, wake up to the fact that it's a reality. Uh, verse four, he says, therefore, uh, we ourselves speak proudly, and that's the missionary team, uh, we speak proudly uh, of you among the churches of God for your perseverance of faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions, which you endure. Now, we already talked about this verse uh, two weeks ago, but we weren't finished with it because there's more to it. It's shocking, I know. Um, we talked last time about the perseverance of their faith. So the Greek word, if you remember, do you remember the Greek word, by the way? No? No? Okay, we're going to start having tests when you come to church. Okay, so hupomone is the, is the hupomone means to really hang on to something like you are not going to let go no matter what. So when it came to their faith, they realized that heaven and hell hang in the balance. I mean, we as Christians deal with eternity. You know this, right? So why do we love the lost? Well, number one, I used to be a non-Christian. And I understand what it's like to be a non-Christian. And I understand the amazing day when I came to know Christ in 1967. It was an amazing day of my life. And the next day was school. I went to tell all my friends at lunch about Jesus. And they're looking at me like, what happened to you over the summer? Uh, I got enlightened. I was a sinner and I knew it. And I got saved at church. And that was yesterday, the day before uh, school started on a Monday. Um, and, and, and Paul's looking at this saying, when you become a Christian, and you know what, what it involves here, it's heaven and hell, forgiveness or no forgiveness, um, relationship with Jesus or no relationship with Jesus, you're, you're playing for keeps. And you love the lost because you want to lead them to Christ. That's the gospel that saves. And so when he looks at this church, he commends them for their perseverance and their faith, which just by way of review, you have to stop and ask yourself, am I hanging on? Am I hanging on to Jesus? I mean, has he got a hold of me? Absolutely. Don't fear. And he says, uh, you do this in the midst of persecutions and afflictions. Uh, Difference between plural and singular? You know this much grammar, right? Uh, difference between one and a whole bunch. And uh, so when you think about Paul commending this church, he commends them for their great, ardent, courageous faith in the port city of Thessalonica. I too can commend you for your great faith in this amazing city called Washington, D.C., the area where we live, suburb of Burke, which I didn't know existed until I applied for a job here. Did you know where it was when you moved here? I didn't. 
I was really shocked when I got on 395 and crested the hill and saw the Air Force Memorial. I was like, whoa, we are that close to D.C.? This is amazing. And the Air Force, the lieutenant colonel sitting in the seat next to me to show me the city with Liz, he's like, and on your left-hand side, you will see the Air Force Memorial. I go, what is that? Sir, those are contrails. I grew up near an air base, okay? I'm like, well, where are the planes? That didn't go over well. <laughs> Sir, there are no planes. Those are just contrails. Just an observation from a Californian, but I apologize. So when you, when you look at our great city, we're strategically placed uh, to be God's light where we are. And with that light comes hostility. It just comes with the turf. That's what Paul says there. There's a reality of persecution. Now, he calls it persecutions, plural, and afflictions, plural. Now, now the Greek words matter, do they not? Yes. Here they do. It's, it's the inspired word of God. So Jesus was probably fluent in Aramaic, because that was the language of the day, Greek. Uh, and also Hebrew. Uh, he was easily trilingual. Um, the words that are used here for persecutions and afflictions are interesting and instructive. So the first word persecutions is uh, diagmos in Greek. Uh, diagos means, according to Danker's Greek lexicon, this is, here's how he defines that word persecutions. Quote, it is a program of systematic harassment, especially of differing beliefs and expressions. So if you hold a different belief than said culture, or express things differently than said culture, you're going to experience systematic harassment. What's happening in our culture? Systematic harassment is exactly what you see occurring. Uh, that's what he said happened in Thessalonica. He said, and, and we could easily say, yeah, I, I can see that in my day and age. Um, I read a lot uh, on, uh, uh, on, uh, on my culture, I always have, to know how to speak to my culture, to also understand what is my adversary doing? Um, I even got a copy, a copy of Sun Tzu, Art of War. Have you read this? You know what I'm talking about? You know, what is a pastor reading that for? Uh, spiritual war? What are the, what, this is very, very much, same things apply. So what, what do I see when I look at uh, systematic harassment in my own country? Uh, it, it's uh, what I would classify as uh, the American version of Marxism that our people actually believe that you can embrace components of Marxism, build them into our culture, and it's gonna be great. This is a lie from the devil. Uh, and, and because it, it never works out well when you look at it in cultures all around the world. So what do they try to do in, uh, in Marxism as they've woven it into our culture? It's pretty simple. Uh, they, they, they create a division between people. So Christianity unites people, right? unites races, people of different uh, social strata, educational strata. In Christ, we are one. What's, what's the, the devil try to do? Split and divide, balkanize people in countries to create chaos. And so you see this happening in our culture, tons of chaos. I just came from California, where I'm from, on, on a sabbatical, and was shocked at the generation that I saw there. I mean, we, there was Mexican. I grew up on the border. I love Mexican food. I don't know how you feel about it. I'm not talking about El Salvadorian food, which is good. I'm talking Mexican food. I am partial to this. I think I'm part Hispanic because of it. I just love it. But there was places that I've gone to since the 60s that when Liz and I got to town, we're like, we know exactly where we're going. And I have friends telling me, eh, you can't go there. Why not? Eh, it's too dangerous. 
you don't want to get mugged going in for a burrito. It's just too, it's too dangerous. And so there were restaurants I couldn't go to because it's total chaos. Uh, we stopped at a like a like a Walgreens kind of place uh, to to buy some sunscreen or something. And I went in and I noticed parked next, next to my car is a giant police box with a long pole with cameras pointing in all directions in the parking lot. And every parking lot in town was like that. I'm like, this is, this is not good. I go inside the store to get the sunscreen and everything in the store is locked down. You can't, you can't shoplift a thing. Not that I was. <laughs> <laughs> But everything was locked down. I'm like, you have got to be kidding me. You got to go get permission to pull some lip balm off the shelf. It's unbelievable. I mean, it's just chaos. But that, that's what Marxism does. It destroys people, puts them against each other. But two classes of people, the, 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 the people who are the, uh, the oppressors, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, the victims. And that system doesn't work because they always create victims. They never get to a place of utopianism because everybody's always pitted against each other. That's why Christianity's got the answer. Uh, man's out of a relationship with God. Once he comes to know God, he's, he's united with other, other saints in Christ. There's one. But that's not how our cu- culture is working. So what they try to do is pit us against each other. And then those who are the, the opposers oppose those who are for marriages between a man and a woman. Morality is absolute, etc. They oppose all those people because they're the bad people. And once they create enough dystopia, then they can overthrow said system with the utopian system, which will be status power. We'll get into this in chapter two. The final prophesied form of political power in the world before Jesus appears, run by the Antichrist, is totalitarian status power. That is prophesied in Daniel two and chapter seven of, of the book of Daniel. That's the last, you're seeing all that happen, are you not? It's the creation of police state power. You do things our way or no way. You see this. And so Paul says, if you live in a society uh, that is uh, following what the devil is doing, they're going to oppose you for your faith. Should you as a Christian be afraid? No, no, because I see what has happened. It's prophesied to happen. Uh, And here's some things you could think about. Number one, it is called persecutions. It's plural. It's going to happen to you more often than not. It will be a systematic plan. Be wise. Number two, he uses the word uh, afflictions, afflictions, plural. The Greek word ellipsis. means pressure. Like, a, do you have a vice on your workbench? Don't you love it? Yeah, I'm always looking for stuff to put in there. It's like crank on this thing. I've broken more things in my vice. I crank too hard. Uh, you know, you want to saw something, you, you crank it down, you tighten it up, you saw it and everything. I just love it. Now, if the wood in the vice could speak as you're cranking on it, getting ready to saw on it, if the wood could speak, and if your wood is speaking, call me. That's another, another issue. Uh, <laughs> If, you're, if, you're, if the wood could speak, what would it say when you're putting the vice on it? Stop that. That's ridiculous. You know? And so that's the word. It's the, it's the word high tension. So if you are in a situation, whether you're, you know, the military, jab, no jab. If you don't get the jab, you lose your job. You lose your rank, kick you out of the military. I mean, whatever it is that you have faced as a Christian. Because I wrote a whole bunch of letters for, for soldiers and airmen, seamen, etc. Uh, when we were going through all of that. Um, but you're in this vice. Uh, and you can feel it tightening in on you. And Paul says, hey, I, can, I see you're, in pers- it's, you're being persecuted systematically. And you're also in that vice of the devil. Uh, don't fear. Realize well, what Jesus said. What did Jesus say? Uh, Jesus said in John 15, 20, a slave is not greater than his masters. If they persecuted me, what? They'll persecute you. 
so realize you just, you're just standing where Jesus stood. Um, also realize when you're persecuted, you're blessed. Um, Matthew 5.10, Jesus says in his first sermon, Blessed are you when you have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for uh, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I mean, you, you got heaven all over you uh, when you're persecuted. Um, when I was in uh, high school, uh, living on the Mexican border, uh, Mexicali, Mexico, where I grew up in the Piro Valley near Yuma. Uh, and my dad was uh, the head of, he was a supervisor of the Port of Entry in Calexico. So I used to take uh, missions teams down into Mexico uh, to preach. That's where I started preaching. So I would grab Hispanic friends from school who didn't go to church at all and say, hey, what are you doing uh, this weekend? Nothing. You want to preach with me? And they all went. It's unbelievable. Um, some of my Hispanic friends were very animated. Some were not. Uh, but, but we went down there. One night, I was down there preaching when I was probably 17 years old. And after I preached, I went behind the stage during the worship. Uh, and I did a children's story. And when I went behind the stage of this little village, it was called a Kukapa Indigenous, that's where I was. And I went behind the stage. Uh, the, the, the people threw a giant piece of wood over the door over, to block the door, like to bar the door. It's a church. And, and I'm like, what's that for? I mean, our church in, across the border didn't have that. And so the ladies that lived there tell me, uh, the men of the village don't like the fact that you're here. Huh? Yeah, and she said, uh, uh, they're, they're coming to, to drag you out and beat you up. <laughs> okay, orale. You know, you got to be kidding me. Uh, no, and they did. A mob forms outside. It was night. It was cold. It was winter. And they're beating on this wooden door. I'm thinking, man, I don't know where they made that door. I hope it's... I hope it's good. And it got a big bar over it. I'm like, thank you for putting the bar on the door. I mean, that's a great way to preach, right? It's very motivational. So uh, it, persecution, seen it. You know, they want to drag me and my team outside because we were there preaching the gospel of Christ. I've seen it. And so uh, don't be afraid because uh, Jesus said, they did this to me, they'll do it to you. Uh, and, uh, and, and I'm going to be with you when that happens. Number two, uh, also realize when you face persecution, there's always a reason for it. Verse five, he says, this is the plain, this persecution is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you as a Christian will be what? It's in English. Considered worthy. Uh, you get afraid. You're like, it's a trick question. No, that's not. Considered what? Worthy of what? The kingdom of God. For which indeed you are suffering. What does that all mean? This, what do you mean this, is a, this persecution is a plain indication? What it means is yeah, your persecution, like the mob outside that church that night, that little village church, that, I, that mob, that was a plain indication I was exactly where God wanted me to be. He's in control of even them, right? They're not outside his purview. Um, when you become a Christian uh, and the Lord forgives you of your sin, you positionally have the righteousness of Christ right? 1 Corinthians 1.30 says he gives you his righteousness. That's your position. Your practice is a whole nother thing. So were you perfect all week? We'll talk about this again. So <laughs> husbands, were you perfect all week? What does the wife say? She's afraid to say. No, there's, there's just no way. No, no one lived a perfect week. And if you're looking at your, you know, whoever you're sitting with now going, I don't know what he's talking about. I got my act together. You need to do a series on pride because you got problems, all right? So there's no way. So, so what's that got to do with the Christian? So Christian, I'm positionally holy before the Lord. That's how I get into heaven. Uh, when I get, see Peter, whoever's at the gate, uh, he sees, I'm covered by the blood of Christ. I'm, I've got his holiness. Your 
practical walk is a whole nother thing because it kind of goes like this, doesn't it? Okay, this, yeah, right? You're so quiet. How's your practice? How's your, how's your spiritual walk? Is it up and down? Mm-hmm. So what's persecution do? Burns out the dross of the stuff that shouldn't be there. That's what it does. Uh, let me give you some ideas. And, th- and that's what he's talking about in this passage. It's an indication of the righteous judgment of God so that you'll be considered worthy, worthy of the king when he shows up. So when Jesus shows up, he's like, wow, man, I, I burned so much dross out of your light, but you are totally going to shine in my kingdom. So as you face opposition, whatever it is, uh, thank God he's burning stuff out of your life that doesn't need to be there. And if you kind of don't think there's any dross there, ask him. Do you follow me? Ask him. And what's going to happen? It's 1135 right now. And say, I'm telling you, at 1155, if you say, Jesus, show me the dross in my life, I'd, I'd say by noon, you're going to have a list. Because he's getting rid of that stuff. He's preparing you for the king and the kingdom. But what does persecution do to you? Here's some ideas I've learned in my life, what persecution has done for me. Number one, persecution causes you to lean on him and to learn from him. So when they're outside the door, beating on the door when I'm in high school, it's leaning on Jesus time, right? Like, I'm not going to throw the door up and go, hey, you guys want to talk? No, I'm leaning on Christ. Lord, you hold that door together. I don't know where they got that wood from Home Depot or wherever it came from. But man, I hope it's, it's going to hold the thing. Persecution ignites your prayer life like nothing else. Isn't that the truth? What do you think we did as high school students? <laughs> Prayed. Lord Jesus. You know, we just came down here to share the gospel. We didn't think we were going to experience this. We, we huddled and we prayed. Three, persecution binds you together with other Christians. No kidding. Uh, number four, persecution motivates you to be filled and controlled by the Spirit on a daily basis. Why? You know you need His power, not your power, to face evil. Uh, persecution verifies you're living a godly, holy life. Because Peter, or uh, Jesus, or uh, Paul. <laughs> I covered almost all of them. 2 Timothy 3.12. He's going to tell you, if you choose to live a godly life, you are going to face persecution. Next, persecution verifies you are following our Lord's example. That's what Peter says. When you are persecuted, the same thing happened to Christ. Just recognize you fit into the same situation. And then persecution emboldens you to speak even more creative and loudly. I mean, you got to love Paul. I mean, the guy was so courageous. I mean, you know, like... <laughs> When, when he's in Ephesus and there's a whole theater full of 20,000 people chanting, great is our God, our, our, our sex God, Artemis, Diana, you know, they're screaming and yelling. And he's outside the theater. What's he saying? You read the story? If you think the Bible's boring, read the story. He's outside going, can I go in and talk to him? There's like 20,000 of them. And, he, and he, he's led so many people to Christ, he's cutting into their idol business. They're wanting to get rid of him. He wants to go in. Yeah, I tell you what, bravery like that. I mean, may we all be brave like that. Because Paul knew what was at stake. What's at stake? Heaven and hell is at stake. He wanted to go back in. So Paul understood the reasons for persecution. God was, you know, when he was stoned uh, in Lystra, uh, God was burning stuff out of his life. Uh, When he was thrown in jail in Philippi under trumped up charges, uh, he just went into the jail and sang, sang, you know, praises to God. Because he knew God was burning stuff out of his life. Do you realize God's working in your life? Three, uh, retribution is, uh, is also something we need to think about in persecution. Now, this is the heart of the passage because it covers the most verses. So if you took a hermeneutics class, a Bible study methods class, they would tell you this is called the law of proportion or that which is the most focused intent of the author is what is really important to him. 
So we could just say that my last two points were my introduction. Shocking, I know. Uh, what he really wants to talk to you about is there's retribution for persecution. Because in your soul, when you see evil prospering, you just know, man, there has to be an accountability. I mean, they have all this evidence, and it's like, you think they would pursue justice, but they don't. Like, what's up? And, and you, something has to happen. And so Paul says, when you see Christians persecuted, in your soul it calls out for justice. God is a just God, and he's going to bring retribution one day. How do I know that? Well, that's what he says. Verse 6. For after all, it is only just for God to do what? To repay with affliction those who afflict you. Do you know what uh, Latin lex talionis is? Okay, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Do you know what that is? As it has been done, it shall, yeah, as, you, as you have done, it shall be done unto you. It's in our vernacular, what goes around comes around. You know that? It's not in the Bible. But, but it's a biblical motif that injustice will meet the justice of God Almighty. And so he's talking about that in this passage, that there's going to be a day when the last shall be first and the first shall be last, when the Lord will settle scores. It's not up for that us to do it. Vengeance is his, his not ours, correct? And so I'm going to give you a couple of things uh, that he says here. So uh, he says in verse 7, he wants to give you relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. I want to make a couple observations about the, the, the coming retribution of which our world is absolutely clueless about. I mean, they think they're getting away with all of their injustice activities and God's in heaven saying, no, I am omniscient. I know, omniscient. I know all things. And one day you will stand before me if you don't know me and give account for what you've done. Number one, divine retribution is promised in verses six to seven. So think about this. God's promising retribution one day where he deals with the wicked for what they've done. Uh, I don't know if you remember the 21 Coptic Christian men who were put into orange jump suits and executed uh, on the seashore of the Mediterranean by ISIS. Do you remember? In 2015? Very disturbing. But also instructive. Because the faith of those young men, not one guy flinched. They all stood for Christ. You have to ask yourself the question, if I was in the jumpsuit, would I have the faith of those young men? Uh, wow, the Spirit gave them great faith. But the Lord knows every single man that died that day on that beach, he knows every single person who killed each one of those Christians. And if those perpetrators do not ever repent and fall before Christ one day to find forgiveness for their sin, they'll stand before God Almighty and give account for what they did. He promises retribution, not what we do, it's what he does. Number two, divine retribution has a purpose to it. Uh, the purpose is to uh, settle uh, accounts to make things just. Because if he didn't do this, then injustice would reign. But with an almighty God who's all about justice, he has to, by definition, have a day where he creates a level playing field where that which is unjust meets his total justice or else he's unjust. So justice is coming. He has a purpose to create justice. And he also says, I'm doing this to bring, bring relief to Christians. Because if you're being persecuted as a Christian, some of you are for your faith, because I know you've told me, um, you're in a point of tension. The word here for relief is a Greek word which speaks of tension. Uh, it's like if you uh, took a bow and arrow and, and stretched a string on it, and it went from being limp to being tight, 
you know, taut. Uh, it's like tension. Uh, and and if, if the string could speak, it would be telling you, hey, could you, uh, could you relax me a bit? It's, it's kind of tight. I'm getting kind of tired. So if you're a Christian being persecuted, you can feel the tension of what you're undergoing uh, be, because it doesn't seem like there's any relief. And Paul says, well, number one, realize retribution is coming. Just, justice stays coming. Number two, uh, it, it, God's just, justice, when it comes, will release you. There will be the day when you see Jesus face to face and the tension will be gone and you'll have absolute shalom, peace in his presence. Number three, um, Divine retribution is a planned event. Uh, he tells you when it's going to occur here. He says it's going to occur when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. If you see angels in fire, not a good sign. They're coming in judgment to the world. When does this happen? Well, it does. You have to go back and listen to our whole series on the rapture of the church in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. What verses? Are you all new? Verses 13 to 18. Yeah, we talked about that in detail. Um, this is at the end of the tribulation when the Lord comes back. Matthew 24, Olivet Discourse. Jesus spoke on the Mount of Olives overlooking the, the Temple Mount. And this is what he said before he was crucified. He says, but, me, but immediately after the tribulation, and by the way, the word tribulation uh, is that same word that, that talks about like affliction, like pressure. He says, uh, of those days, what's going to happen? Well, cosmic changes. The sun will be darkened. Uh, the moon will not give its light. The stars, they're just going to fall from the sky, just one after the other. And the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man, that's a code word for Jesus, will appear in the sky. And then all of the tribes of the earth will mourn. Why? They rejected him, but now they shall see him. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with, uh, with power and great glory. Uh, and he will then send forth his angels with a great trumpet. It's going to blast. Everybody on the planet will hear it. And they will gather together his elect Christians from the four winds from all over the planet and from one end of the sky to the other. And then you know what he does if you read chapter 25. He judges. Sheep and goats. Sheep are mine. Goats are not mine. Sheep, you're mine. You're not mine. You're mine. You're not 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 mine. Those sheep walk into the kingdom with the king of kings. Hey, he judges the goats, those who rejected him. His retribution is purposeful. His rep rep retribution is planned. He's planned the event for his arrival. He will turn off the cosmic lights, make, make the cosmos pitch black, and in the middle of that, his dimension will break forth into our dimension, and you'll see the Shekinah glory of God Almighty. Talk about that day. There will be two responses. The Christian on the planet that day that will see him will be saying, they'll be super Pentecostal that day. <laughs> no one's going to be standing there going, oh, it's Jesus. Yeah. Uh, right. Right. They're all going to be Pentecostals because they're going to be animated that day. Are they not? If it was you, you see Jesus and breaking through the glory, it's going to be hallelujah. Right? Am I right? Yes. You sound excited. Uh, if you're not a Christian and you rejected Christ, uh-oh. I need, uh, 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 oh, uh, there he is. I've rejected him my whole life. He's coming back. It says that uh, Paul talks about this being a revelation. He's going to be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire. So the word uh, apocalypsis in the Greek text uh, it means to, to, take, to take a curtain away from some, something. So Wizard of Oz, did you? you yeah, you've seen it. So, you know, I don't, like back in the 60s when I watched it, when you had like two channels, 
and it was a white, uh, black and white TV with rabbit ears. Uh, and it kind of faded in and out, and you're watching. And that's how we watched it as a kid. Uh, and I remember that, that movie scared me to death as a child. And my mom always set us down every year to watch it. I'm like, serious? Uh, I don't know how you watched it, but I always watched it like this. Yeah. <laughs> my sister is, you know, like, he's so scared. Yeah, you got that right. I'm scared. Those monkeys in there, they're scary. Uh, but when you get to the Oz, and it's flames and fire and everything. And then there's that curtain off to the right. Remember? You seen the movie? And then they just move the curtain back, and it's like, oh, now I understand. There's laws right there. That's apocalypsis. It's pulling back the curtain. Like right now, we can't see into the heavenly dimension, but it's right there. On this day, God says, let me move back the dimension of barrier so you can't see my dimension, and you're going to see it, and that glory is going to be greater than a, a 10,000 suns when he descends. You're going to be there on that day with him? Or will you be the object of the retribution? Uh, his, his, another thing about his retribution, it's very particular, verse 8. He deals out retribution to who? Those who do not know God. And to those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. To all those who do not, God, do not know God based upon how God says you must know him in the scriptures. So Lord, I, I came through another theological system that had nothing to do with you. Then you don't know God. Well, I thought there were many paths up the mountain to you. No, there's only one path. Remember John 14, 6? Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no man comes to the Father but through me. That's why prepositions are important. There's only one way to God's presence. It's through Christ. And so he says he's going to judge them. So his retribution will be very particular, judging all of those who either don't know him or knew the gospel and would never embrace it. Like my mom's brother, my uncle Charles. Uh, he was one of the leading scientists in the world with orchid flowers. You can look up his name on the internet. He wrote a bunch of books. Uh, his, my aunt Marg was a scientist. Very smart, genius like you. Very smart people. Um, till his dying day, he would not embrace Christ. Uh, when my aunt Marg died and my uncle came uh, down to see us, um, he called me off to the side. He's a scientist. He's a thinker. Uh, very sarcastic. And uh, he was real after my aunt died. He called me off to the side and he said, I need to talk to you. I'm like, yeah, well, about what? And he said, uh, have you ever heard the song Amazing Grace? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, he goes, I, I've never heard of that song. He goes, there's something about that song. When I hear it, I just uncontrollably weep. He said, I'm a scientist. I don't weep like that. He goes, I'm talking uncontrollably. He goes, there's something about that haunting tune. I said, Uncle Charles, it's not the tune. He goes, what are you talking about? I go, it, it, it's the words. He goes, what do you mean? I said, think about the first verse. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound is saved a wretch like me. I said, I came to terms in 1967. I was a wretch. And I needed a savior. I needed his grace. I said, you're weeping because you realize you're still a wretch. And I said, Uncle Charles, think about verse, the last verse. When we've been there, huh? 10,000 years bright shining as the sun. I said, Uncle Charles, you're not crying because of the tune. You're crying because you as a scientist, a thinking man know because you've rejected Christ your whole life, you will not be there bright shining as the sun. But you can be. Well, I can't, I can't do that. <laughs> I can't embrace Jesus. No way. I can't, I can't do that. I won't do that. Until he died, my mom called him right before he died and said, Charlie, don't you want to trust Christ? And he said, Susie, I, I, I can't do that. His choice, he slipped into eternity without God. 
And this is what Paul is talking about here. Um, God will deal out retribution based upon your decision. You choose. Uh, divine retribution in verses 9 and 10 is perpetual. How do I know that? It says it is. Um, he says, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day at the end of the tribulation and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. He's going to mete out eternal, eternal punishment, destruction. Uh, I'm going to offer a couple points about this. We haven't talked in detail about this. So I'm going to present a couple of things for you to think about because people have a problem with eternal punishment. But look at it this way. Sin against the absolutely holy, eternal God demands eternal judgment based on the premise of the heinous nature of the sin. That's key. And so, a couple points. Number one, people who will go in eternity to one of two places. It's not what I say, it's what the scriptures teach. You have two places, you know. Where are you going? Heaven or hell? And it's your choice to pick two. Uh, Jesus spoke the most about hell's existence of anybody in the entire Bible. Um, case in point, Matthew 10, 28. What does he say? Do not fear those who can kill the body, uh, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him, i.e. God, uh, who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. And this is not an annihilation of the soul. This is perpetual an, a, judgment, as we're going to see. Matthew 13, verse 49, Jesus said, So it will be at the end of the age, the angels shall come forth, take the wicked from among the righteous, sheep and the goats, and will cast them, the, the goats, into the furnace of fire. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, not annihilation, but perpetual existence, they'll understand it. Gnashing teeth and pain. Three, hell according to Christ is a real place. I know that because I've studied it in detail. I took a, I, I've studied it. I mean, I, I took a doctoral class on it uh, years ago. Uh, it is a real place. Uh, according to Luke 16, uh, you have consciousness there. You remember who your unsaved family members were. You can, um, you can see into heaven. You can see water, but you can't get to it. Your body, which is a body uh, uh, that's not a physical body, it's a spiritual body, somehow burns with some kind of fire, but it's not real fire, but it's a sensation of fire. That's some kind of fire. And if you need a picture of that, think of the, the burning bush. Uh, when Moses saw the bush burn, but, but it was not consumed, that kind of fire. It's an unusual fire. Uh, there's a fire there. It doesn't annihilate you. How do I know that? Because in Revelation 19, 20, uh, at the end of time, uh, Jesus is going to throw the beast and the false prophet into the, the, the lake of fire, the final abode of the godless. Um, in Revelation 20, 10, when God finishes his kingdom plan and he, he takes the godless of all ages and throws them into the lake of fire, it says that the beast and the prophet are still there. They have been there a thousand years. They're not annihilated. Um, four, hell is according to Christ, eternal punishment. Think about it this way. The Greek word, ionion, eternal, same word used to describe heaven. So how long is heaven? It's eternal. It's eternal. It's timeless. Same concept. So if it's eternal for heaven, it's got to be by definition eternal for hell. Uh, the other thing is this Greek word is a, a word that describes the nature of God. So it says God is eternal, ionion. God is eternal. So if God is eternal and cannot by definition be non-eternal, then if he uses the same term to speak of people going to hell, that particular word must refer to eternal existence. A couple other things to think about. Uh, annihilationalism. Uh, some people want to believe in th that the lost are just annihilated and vaporized, and they don't exist anymore. Scripture does not teach this. Um, 
Annihilationism speaks of immediate destruction, but the scriptures, i.e. Christ, uh, speaks of perpetual torment all over the place. Number two, uh, after the lost are annihilated, it would stand to reason that God would turn out the fires of judgment, but he doesn't. They perpetually burn because he's not annihilating them. Number three, um, if the souls of the lost can be annihilated, that contradicts the scriptures which teach that hell is eternal darkness. Eternal darkness, uh, like in Jude uh, chapter 1 verse 13. I'm only here today to tell you, this is what the scriptures teach. So write God an email today if you have an argument. Because this is what he says. My obligation, I'm like a, I'm the waiter at the restaurant. I'm serving you. This is what the scriptures teach. You know, you either partake or you don't partake. You're either warned or you're not warned. I used to go door to door in San Diego on an uh, internship I did in San Di- when I was in seminary. And I knocked door to door and answering the, asked the simple question. If you were to die tonight and stand before God, uh, what, what would you say is the reason why you should come into heaven? I did that all summer, one summer in San Diego. One man was most interesting. I approached the house. He's sitting on the front porch. He's got a Coors in his hand. It's a cool one. It's a summer day. He's drinking. He's having a good time. I come up. (laughs) And I ask him. He's like, hey, what are you doing today? Well, I'm just out, you know, and it's uh, for the church over here and talking to people about their spiritual life. Hey, man, I don't have one. (laughs) And um, I'm like, uh, if you were to die tonight and stand before God, you know, um, would you go to heaven? I don't want to go to heaven. Oh, really? No, 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 man. I'm going to hell. Oh, oh, okay. You must listen to ACDC, huh? Uh, yeah, highway to hell. Yeah. Uh, they're lying to you. you. You heard the ACDC highway to hell? Yeah, you're just not going to tell me. Yeah, you know, all my friends are going there. Oh, they might be going there, but you're not going to see them. Why not? It's a place of utter darkness. It's, a, it's aloneness. Not only are you cut off from the presence and the glory of God, you're cut off from all your friends in the middle of all of that. So it's a fire that burns, but it creates darkness as well. Talk about supernatural judgment. Why would you want to go there? He said, because I just, I love to party, man. You know, I can tell you that on the day of judgment, he will not be happy with the fact he partied. What's keeping you from the king? So I'm here to warn you that there's a better way. What's the better way? The cross of Christ. He came to redeem you and save you. What are you waiting for? Don't be like my uncle, using your analytical mind to argue yourself out of heaven. Bow at the feet of Christ, and he will save you. And I leave you with uh, Paul's closing counsel to these hostile, uh, these believers facing hostility. Notice what he says. He's going to pray for them. This is my prayer for you. To this end, we pray for you always. What's our prayer? Number one, that our God will count you worthy of your calling. What's that mean? Well, that you live in light of the fact that you call yourself a Christian. Nothing worse than a hypocritical Christian, correct? Uh, and number two, that, uh, that God will fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith in, with power. Um, and so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and Lord Jesus Christ. So two parts of the prayer. Number one, you'll live your life of faith for all to see. What does our culture need to see? A real Christian that loves Christ and loves them too, by the way. And number two, a Christian that is known for great works. Think about Jesus. Did he love people? Yeah. Did he love people? Yeah. Who did he hang out with? Boy, you name it. He hung out with them. Uh, all uh, the educated, the uneducated, the, the sinful, the prostitute, you name it. He hung out because he loved them and he loved them toward 
salvation. Do you, do you love the lost like that? To befriend them, to be with them, to showcase the gospel. Might we be the kind of church that does these two things? Lives the faith, actually lives it, and then does great works to those about us that need to see the hands and feet of Christ. The power did not go out. Praise God at the end of my sermon. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. The last service, it ended like right here and it just went totally black. So I told everybody to go toward the light. So why don't you, why don't you stand? If you do not know Christ as your savior, then my challenge to you today is to say simple prayer. Lord, save me, redeem me, and he will do it right then. Let's pray. God, thank you for being a God who saves, a God who loves us enough to send your son to die and rise the third day. Whatever arguments anybody has today to keep them from that relationship with you, might they realize that today those arguments aren't going to hold water in eternity. Better to embrace you by faith and be saved this day and enjoy the wonders of that relationship. And we who know you, may we be courageous uh, with the gospel of Christ, live like Christians, don't just talk like it, and perform works that reflect you to those about us in Christ's name. Amen.